But let's get into the word. We have four verses to cover this morning. So not too heavy in uh, volume, but there is a lot in content. And we're all hungry because we can smell the food. Amen? All right. So open your Bibles to Acts chapter 8 and let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you tremendously. And the greatest gratitude that we have in our hearts in our lives that we want to express to you is we give you thanks for you. We love you, Lord. As you've revealed yourself to us in different ways over time, we find you to be wonderful, holy, kind, caring, even in those moments, Lord, when we've raised our fist at you, when we wanted to yell at you, when we were frustrated and we didn't understand, you were there as our God, as our Father, reminding us of your power, reminding us of your plan and your purpose for our lives. You continually take our attention and cause us to gaze at your beautiful son, Jesus. We give you thanks for Jesus. We give you thanks that you sent your son to die on our behalf, to give us life. We give you thanks for his resurrection. We give you thanks for the knowledge that he is seated at your right hand right now in his worthiness and glory and majesty as our savior and as our king. We give you thanks for the Holy Spirit that you have sent to dwell in us. You have made us one with you. It's the only reason we are here, Lord. So we give you thanks. Give you thanks for your word. We give you thanks for the men and women and children that are in this place this morning. Not because of the work that we're doing, Lord, but because of the work that you're doing. You were changing us and transforming us, making us to be the men and women of God that you've created us to be. For that, we love you. So fill this place with your love this morning. Fill this place with your joy and speak to us as a congregation and as followers of you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, first four verses here of Acts 8 says, Now Saul was consenting to his death, Stephen's death. At that time, a great persecution arose against the church, which was at Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made a great lamentation over him. As for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering every house and dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. Therefore, those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the word. 
So last week, we covered the long chapter of chapter 7 as Stephen, a man who has been defined for us as a man who was filled with the Holy Spirit. He was filled with wisdom. And and this is all in regards to his relationship with Jesus. He was chosen by the people of the congregation to stand in the gap for widows who were being neglected. We're not sure of his age, but my assumption and my guess is he'd be a little bit older, maybe middle-aged, where he would have a mom who was a widow, a grandma who was a widow, that he would have some kind of life experience to have empathy for those women that he is now being asked to stand in the gap and to take care of. In regards to that, we don't know if he was married. We don't know if he had sons and daughters. But here, as he was dragged before the council, dragged before the Sanhedrin because of what he was preaching in regards to who Jesus Christ is and these lies that are being presented, he went through his defense. And last week, we ended in this, his attention through this, his entire message was not just attending Letting us know where his own soul and life was pointing to, which is Jesus. But his desire for everybody that he was speaking to, look, look, the doors of heaven are open. And they've only been opened because of Jesus. Who he is and what he has done is why the doors of heaven are open. And look, everybody, look, I see Jesus. He is standing at the right hand of the Father. Everybody's attention that is on him in anger as they're closing their ears and they're rushing towards him in violence. His heart, his life, his focus was still on Jesus. His desire was still for everybody that he was able to communicate to. Don't look at me, get your eyes on Jesus. And then in his personal relationship, Lord Jesus, Receive my spirit. You are my Lord. You are my Savior. You are my God. You are my hope. Here he is at the moment of his death, and he is looking to Jesus as, Lord, receive me into your presence. And, Lord, as you're receiving me, don't fix this sin. As these people are throwing stones at my head, don't fix this sin upon them. Can you imagine that moment where in your relationship with Christ, that full understanding is you were being abused wrongly. Lord, don't fix this sin on them. It's powerful in regards to who this man was. At the end of chapter 7, we have this final sentence when he had said this, this la- these last words out of his mouth that he fell asleep. And as we deal with the death of a Christian, the language that's used in the Bible, I really do find it fascinating because in the New Testament, it's always the believer who dies is one who falls asleep. It is not the end. It is a word that is filled with hope because there is a resurrection coming. It is the dead in the body, the body is buried, the spirit has gone on to be with Jesus where he is in his presence. The death of a Christian is a tremendous hope. It doesn't feel like that as we process through those things. We had a funeral in here last Saturday. Not easy at all, lots of questions why, 
But in those questions of why, again, we are attending our soul to get back and to look at Jesus. Psalm 116, 15 reveals God's heart to us, which he says, Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. This word precious, it means valuable, rare. It means this is, this is when, it, when a saint dies, which a saint is anybody who is a believer in Jesus Christ. When a saint dies, that, that death, it's something that, that, that is a value to God. There is a high cost there. And that high cost ultimately revolves around God himself stepping into the flesh and becoming like us to die the death that we all deserve because of sin. But he died for us. That came at our salvation, our life, our ability to be in his presence for all eternity came at that cost. Precious, of high value is the death of a saint. And think of what it costs for you to be able to abide in God's presence for all eternity. High cost. And then the death of an unbeliever. Ezekiel thirty-three eleven says that God... He says, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. We just had, you know, was this a couple months ago where the leader of ISIS was killed? Once again, just, it's it's a death that is trumpeted as a triumph. And again, this is wartime. There's all kinds of, we're not sitting in the sins of all the issues that are going on. But even that man in the judgment that he received from the world, from humanity, in being executed for this, his sins, whether they were sins against individuals or sins against nation, it was a death that the world applauded because justice was served. But God's heart in his word that he conveys to us God doesn't take pleasure in the execution and death of a wicked person. His pleasure, his desire, what he has provided is that every soul that is caught up in its bondage, sin, pride, whatever it may be, God's desire is that that soul would turn away from their way and turn to his way and turn to the Lord and live. Again, we can sit in this testimony with Stephen. He was a man who turned away from his religion. He turned away from his culture and he turned to Jesus. And even as he is dying in the flesh, he turned to live. Beautiful testimony. Here in verse At the end of verse 2 of chapter 8, it says, Devout men carried Stephen to his burial, and they made this great lamentation over him. Devout men in the New Testament, usually, more often than, well, like all the time, it's referring to godly Jews or godly proselytes that have become Jews. It's usually, it's not referring to Christians, so it creates this little question mark. These men... So picture the scene again. Stephen was before the Sanhedrin. He is bearing testimony. He is saying, look, I see the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. This 
takes everybody's mind back to Daniel 7, this prophecy about who the Messiah is. This is the words that came out of Jesus' mouth that the Sanhedrin condemned Jesus to death. These are the words that are coming out of Stephen's mouth that are condemning Stephen to death. These are people that are stopping their ears. They're rushing at Stephen in violence. They have dragged him to where they dragged him. They have taken off their outer clothes, laid them at the feet of Saul. They have picked up stones and they just killed this man. This is, the, this is the tension that's in the moment, the violence that's in the moment. And here, these devout and courageous men, they come and they take this man's body. And they beat their breasts in lamentation for the death that he just suffered. And this, this again, we don't know if these men were believers in Jesus or if these were just godly men Godly Jews who weren't consenting to Stephen's death. So remember, when Jesus dies, who comes and gets his body? Joseph of Arimathea. Nicodemus comes with spices to anoint Jesus' body. The, the testimony that we have of Joseph of Arimathea, when you look at all four Gospels, they say he was a prominent council member. So that means Joseph of Arimathea was on the council as Jesus was being tried. He was there as the apostles had been being tried. He was there as Stephen was just tried. So Joseph of Arimathea is one of these men that are there not consenting to Stephen's death. He called him a prominent council member, a good and just man. Said he was waiting for the kingdom of God. Hold on to that because we're going to come back to the kingdom of God in about 10 minutes. He was a secret disciple of Jesus. He had not consented to their decision indeed against Jesus. So this is a, a snapshot in regards to the men who have come and grabbed Stephen's body to give him a proper burial. Don't know if Joseph was in this group. Don't know if these are believers. But here is this man has just become the first martyr, the first witness of Jesus Christ to lay down his life for the gospel, for Jesus' name's sake. These devout men come and give him a proper burial, give him a proper mourning. And this is standing in contrast to Saul. Because here we have at the end of uh, chapter 7, we had that the, the clothes were laid, these outer garments, they were laid at the, the feet of the young man named Saul. That's our introduction to Saul. Here at the beginning of chapter 8, it says that Saul was consenting to Stephen's death. This idea is that he is, he is approving of it. He is in line with it. He is in agreement with it, whether it's an official vote or not. Here Saul is in this position of consenting to his death. And then here in verse 1, it says, at that time, literally, it's at this day. On this day, a great persecution broke out against the church. So the anger, the tension, the we're done with this, we're going to do something about this, all that boiled up in the souls of these men as they dragged Stephen for their death, to his death, they are now, this is now boiling over in the culture. And we're not just going to take care of Stephen, we're going to take care of anybody that's naming the name of Jesus. This is, this is the great persecution that began on this very day. And the idea of persecution, it's a hunt. This is a, 
This is if you are a hunter at all and you go and you hunt any kind of wild game, there's a process to it. There's a tracking. You're, you're, you're using your skills and your abilities to find where the game is, to find. So for them, it's going to be finding where the Christians are meeting, trying to determine who's a believer of Jesus, who's not, who's proclaiming the name of Jesus, who's, who's still submitted to the authority of the Sanhedrin. This is a great hunt that breaks out in Jerusalem. Saul is the great hunter. And I want you to listen to this description. So here you have Saul is consenting to Stephen's death. And then here in verse 3 it says, As for this Saul, Saul was making havoc of the church. The word havoc, it means to ravage to waste, to harm, to ruin, to destroy. The imagery that we have in regards to this is it's a boar that is destroying a vineyard. If anybody knows what a boar, a boar roots up the ground, digs up crops, ruins the ground, devastates a, would devastate a vineyard if you let a wild boar into a vineyard. This is the imagery. For us, it's, the, it's that uh, the bowl in the china closet. This is who Paul is at this moment in his life. To sit in this a little bit, um, all of these verses will be up on the wall and just leave them up there for a few minutes so people can take notes um, and you can go chase down these verses on your own. But I want you to listen to the heart of Saul, to who he was at this moment. So here in Acts 3, we have Saul. He is making havoc of the church. It says that he is entering into every house. This is not just he's entering to the homes, the larger homes where the church was gathering together for worship. He is entering into individual homes. He's stepping into your home because you believe in Jesus Christ. And as he's stepping into your home, he's stepping in with violence. He is stepping in with rage. It says that he is dragging off. This is with violence. This is with force. He's dragging off not just men, but dragging off women also. And the, the language that we are given, this is, this is, a, this is not easy. This is not... Um, there's nothing flippant about this. There's no, oh, it's just dealing with this small little segment over here. The assumption when you add up, as Jesus has been adding believers to the church throughout the book of Acts so far, a conservative estimate is there's roughly 25,000 believers in Jerusalem at this point. And the hunt is on. And entering into your home, entering into these homes, dragging off husbands, dragging off wives, and committing them to prison. Again, in this context, when you're committing them to prison, it's not for this long-term thing. They're awaiting their trial and the judgment's gonna come. And as we listen through the rest of this, some of this, these judgments that came against men and women resulted in their death. It resulted in their beatings. It resulted in forcing them to blaspheme God. So listen to the rest of these verses. In Acts chapter nine, so this is the, the chapter where Saul converts and has this encounter with Jesus it says Saul was still breathing threats so out of he's using the breath that God has given to him in his lungs to pass over his vocal cords he is breathing out threats he is breathing out murder against the disciples of the Lord he went to the high priest he asked letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus 
So not only there in Jerusalem, he's seeking to go all the way to Damascus so that if he found any who were of the way, followers of Jesus, whether men or women, that he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Think of the intensity of that action. Made havoc of the church there in Jerusalem. I feel that my job is done here. This, this way has gone beyond the borders of Jerusalem, goes to the ruling authorities. Give me letters of authority so that I can go to this community and enter into houses there and find these people, men and women, bind them and drag them all the way back to Jerusalem to stand trial before those who are supposed to be standing for God. Acts 9.21 after Paul's conversion, those that were there in Damascus, they said this, so this was the testimony. Is this not he who destroyed those who called on this name, on the name of Jesus in Jerusalem? And he's come here for that purpose so that he might bring them bound to the chief priests. Acts 22, Paul saying, I am indeed a Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia and brought up in this city at the feet of Gamaliel, brought up there in Jerusalem, taught according to the strictness of our father's law and was zealous toward God as all you are today. I persecuted this way to the death. And that's not just Stephen's death. So when we're talking about the Paul making havoc of the church. He persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering into prisons both men and women. As also the high priest bears me witness and all the counsel of the elders from whom I also received letters to the brethren and went to Damascus to bring in chains, even those who were there to Jerusalem to be punished. Acts twenty two nineteen. Paul said, Lord, they know, listen to this, that in every synagogue I imprisoned and beat those who believe on you. And when the blood of your martyr Stephen was shed, I also was standing by consenting to his death and guarding the clothes of those who were killing him. Acts 26, 9. Indeed, I myself thought I must do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. This I did in Jerusalem, and many of the saints I shut up in prison, having received authority from the chief priests. And when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in every synagogue, and compelled them to blaspheme. And being exceedingly enraged against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. Galatians 1.13, Paul said, You have heard of my former conduct in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. In Philippians 3, verse 4, last one, if anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so. Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, concerning the law of Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church. So what do you think of Saul? And again, we know him as the great apostle Paul. 
But as we sit in the testimony of who this man was before Jesus, everything that he thought that he was doing was being motivated through his zeal for the God of Israel. And in his motivation, he found himself as an enemy of God. And as an enemy of God, can you, I can't imagine it's, it's, not my, it's not my personality, and this isn't part of our culture, um, but entering into individual homes because people are violating uh, the doctrine in regards to who Jesus Christ is in truth. Can you, I mean, seriously, can you imagine having some kind of authority in your culture where you are going from house to house and with violence, with anger, with force, you are entering in for the sole purpose of bringing these people in compliance to your doctrine. That's what Paul was doing. Destroying, making havoc. We just sang a bunch of songs in regards to God is a good father. He is perfect in all of his ways. We worship him. We adore him. He is good. He is gracious. He is kind. He is loving. He is merciful. And then we sit in the opposition of, well, why did this holy God allow his church, believers in Jesus, followers of him in the way, why did he allow them to suffer persecution, to be hunted, to be dragged away from spouses, for spouses to be dragged away from children, parents betraying children, children betraying parents, trying to cleanse out this spot in the culture of Israel, in the spot of this culture in Jerusalem. This is, this is the heart of Paul as he is making havoc in this community, as a hunter, persecuting, pursuing and sitting in it from the perspective of the hunted, what would you do? Here you know not just this man, but a group of individuals are making havoc of the church. They have the authority of the rulers of the community. They're knocking on the doors of your neighbor. Who's betraying who? We saw that you know Joseph of Arimathea was a secret believer in Jesus Christ. How many people were keeping their faith secret because of the persecution that's right before them, the cost that's right before them? The, the body that is gathered and being built together at Jerusalem, it's very unique in regards to the body of Christ where we've seen the snapshots where people are selling property. They're bringing in those funds to help take care of the body of Christ in this community. Resources are dwindling. Business is not being conducted as it was before. The favor that they had in the community is now totally gone. And now it's at every corner, whenever you go to the marketplace, are they seeing me? Am I next? God uses this persecution, this hunt, as a catalyst to what? To scatter. And this is the word scatter. It's the sowing of seeds. So when we think about Jesus, the parable of the sower in Matthew 13, he's using this imagery in this culture that as a sower goes out to sow, he's casting these seeds. And as these seeds are cast, in the parable of the sower, they're landing on different conditions of soil. And the parable is describing the different conditions of the human heart as the word of God is being planted. But here the same imagery is being used, but the seed that is being cast is what? 
It's still the word of God. Do you know why? Because the human seeds that are being cast into the different communities in Judea, being cast into the community of Samaria, these are human seeds that are going forward with the word of God. And it says here in verse 4, Therefore, those who were scattered, they went everywhere preaching the word. The human seeds that were scattered. The human seeds that have a relationship with Jesus as the Christ, as the Messiah, as their personal Savior. He saved me. Those individuals are now being broadcast into different communities. Some are going in family units. Some may be going in business units, similar trades. Some are going to communities where they may already have family and business relationships. Some are going into communities where they are complete and total strangers. And as they enter into these different communities, we're told in, uh, in chapter 11 that as the, these, this particular group, as they are being scattered, they're going to the Jews only. They're not going to the Gentiles. But this is them being witnesses in Jerusalem. Jesus said, I will empower you to be my witnesses here in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria. So now here's the next step as we follow the the overarching narrative of the book of Acts. The human seeds are now being scattered. They are going with the word of God into these communities. Now, another pause here. Are these the professionals Or are these just normal people? Who are the professionals at this time? Who would you say are the professional ministers? The apostles, right? Maybe deacons, maybe elders, however the the church is structured at this point. The apostles are remaining there in Jerusalem. Nobody knows why. But to remain there, to keep the centralized leadership there, to remain, we're not going to flee from this persecution. We're going to be here to be an encouragement, keep teaching the word. We don't know why. We don't know all the different dynamics that are going on. The apostles remain, and it's people just like you and just like me, everyday people, not professionals, going and living their life, fleeing from being hunted, knowing that they are still going to be hunted and pursued, fleeing to new communities where they're taking whatever they have on their backs and trying to go and reestablish themselves. And as they're reestablishing themselves in these communities, whether it's with family members, whether it's with strangers, whether it's in the business, in the marketplace, whatever's going on, what are they doing? This is who I am. This is why I'm here. Why are you here this morning? Where'd you come from? Who has Jesus been to you? What's your testimony? Some of you have been raised from childhood in the church. Some of you were raised in the world and you've come to Jesus. Some of you haven't crossed over that threshold and said, Jesus is my Lord. But all of you have come from here and there and been brought into this place this morning. Human seeds with the word of God in you, the very God of gods, the Holy Spirit dwelling in you through faith in Jesus. What is your testimony? We had Owen and Anna over last night for dinner and just sharing testimony. This is who God has been to me. This is what he's done in our lives, right? Little snapshots. And this is what, again, this is what the people are doing as they live in the community that they're living in. Here's who the Messiah is. Here's who Jesus of Nazareth is. 
This is where he is right now. This is what he did. So as we sit in our faith and our relationship with Jesus, as they go out into these communities, it says they're preaching the word. The word for preaching is evangelizing. It's gospelizing. So it's a specific message. So write this in your notes, and I want you to do this for homework. Because you need to sit in the definition. What is the gospel? The word means good news. And as we sit in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they're all identified as the gospels. But it's good news. But it's good news concerning something. And when Jesus first shows up in his public ministry... It's repent. It's this broadcast of information as he is teaching, as he is anointed by the Spirit, and he is now teaching as he has been set underneath the authority of God, empowered through the Holy Spirit in his life, as he's performing miracles, as he's going from community to community as a preacher. What is he preaching? Turn from your way. Turn from your religion. Turn from your idols. Turn from your sins. And turn to the living God. Why? Because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The gospel is good news concerning God's kingdom. Whether you call it the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, interchangeable words in the gospels. But what what does it contain? What is the good news? What is the information about God's kingdom? Because it's this information that God is the one who created the heavens and the earth. If he has that power to create, does he have the power to plan? Does God have a purpose? Does he have an intention? Is there a cohesion to the Old Testament? Has God been walking alongside of man and woman that he created in his image all throughout history? The affirmation, yes. The gospel, the good news concerning the kingdom of heaven is God has a plan. And there is no plan B. There has never been a plan B. God has never said, I didn't expect that. (laughs) I mean, think about in your life, in all of your joy, in all of your pain, in all of your struggles, in your sin, in agonizing in prayer, in your relationships with other human beings, in things that have been done to you, in the things that you have done to other people, the things that you have said, good, bad, ugly, indifferent, there is not a single sliver of your life that is not unknown to the God who created us. Nothing is unknown to him. We wrestle through the whys and the winds and the hows. Faith comes back to the attention as Jesus is proclaiming the kingdom of God. He is proclaiming this is God's plan. And throughout his preaching, throughout the preaching of the book of Acts, throughout the, the letters that we have, throughout the history of Christianity, it is always attending people back to look at God's plan from the very beginning. He promised us victory over the death that came because of our sin. 
And all through that, as he chose Abraham, he said that Abraham, he was selecting Abraham because Abraham was going to be a blessing to all peoples. Why? Because his descendant. Again, it's all these Old Testament times where God has moved upon the hearts and minds of men through his Holy Spirit to proclaim his truth. As Jesus shows up, he is saying, I am a fulfillment of that. God's plan back here, here is how it's being fulfilled in him sending me. After Jesus ascends to heaven, the church is saying, here, this is what God promised in the Old Testament. This is what he said that was going to happen. Go sit in Isaiah 52 and 53 and tell me that that is not Jesus Christ dying on the cross for the sins of humanity. Plan A. Before the foundation of the world, before he spoke this creation into existence, God's plan was the crucifixion of his son. God, again, the gospels, this, this not only does God have a plan, but here's now this, 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 the person in the work of Jesus Christ. And this is what we sit in throughout the gospels. But again, you sit in the gospel as John, it's God, the very word of God, the very son of God, tabernacled in this flesh. God became a man. And we sit in the narrative of the Gospels in regards to who he was. We have his birth and his upbringing and his life, what he taught, the miracles that he performed, how he was betrayed, his trial, his, his scourging, his death on that cross, his resurrection, his ascension, the promise of his return. When we talk about the narrative, the message of the gospel, the message of the good news of the kingdom of God, God has a plan and his plan has always been revolving around himself in relationship in the Godhead, Father, Son, Spirit. Before the foundation of the world, the Son was going to come and be just like you and I, being obedient to the point of this death. Again, we sit in the gospel as this, this identification of the eyewitness testimony that these things happened in past. This isn't a fairy tale. This isn't pretend. This isn't some religion that man has invented. When you sit in the testimony of the culture, when you sit in the testimony of the eyewitness accounts of what happened, and not just in the word of God, but those testimonies that we have from outside of the word of God. These were real historical events. Jesus was a real historical person. He was really put to death on a cross 2,000 years ago. His body was really taken down. It was really put into a tomb. He was really mourned over. His followers were really confused. They were filled with doubt. And they really saw him three days later. He sent in uh, 1 Corinthians 15. It's an awesome brief, you know, the beginning of the chapter. They'll sit in the whole chapter. The whole chapter is awesome. But the beginning of it, Paul is proclaiming the gospel. Here's what has been proclaimed. Here's what you have received. Here's, here's the message in which you stand. Jesus did these things according to the scriptures, according to what the Old Testament said was going to happen. But over and over again, he says, after his resurrection, he was seen. He was seen by Peter. He was seen by James. He was seen by over 500 at one time. Paul, he was even seen by me there on that road to Damascus as one born out of due time. 
The gospel message revolves around God's plan. It revolves around the person of Jesus Christ. It revolves around the power in his life, in his death, in his resurrection, in his ascension, in his return. And that presentation of this good news of the kingdom is you are welcome into that kingdom. The doors of heaven are open. God uses the means of taking men and women filled with his spirit, filled with faith, filled with his truth, and scatters them into communities throughout the world. Some go willingly, some go through persecution, some go through uh, you know, a lot of financing, others go out in total poverty. The whole spectrum is there. The Lord uses everything to take human beings to go out and to proclaim the message. And the message is that God is. And God has a plan, not just this big grand plan, but he has a plan in creating you. And there's not one aspect of your life that is unknown to him. He is there to walk with you through that, telling you to get your eyes on me and follow me. Stephen, look at Jesus. He uses men and women. How many people did he use to speak this same message to you in your history? Whether it was in a church context, whether it was in over coffee, whether you heard it on a podcast or the television, how many different messengers has God sent into your life so that you would know who he is? How many different messengers has he sent into your life to proclaim to you good news? And it's not just this fluffy information that's going to make you feel good about yourself. The information revolves around the true nature and character of our God. It also revolves around the true nature and character of our sin and who we are as children of wrath and children of disobedience apart from a relationship with that God. The gospel messaging is always, here is who Jesus is. Here is who he has become to me. Here is how he revealed himself to me. Here is how he has changed me. I was a total hedonist, living in this world for myself, wandering, just doing what the culture told me to do, and feeling good about it, and feeling guilty about it, and growing unstable in that, and growing convicted in that. And sent multiple people across my path, the main one being my wife, to convey this message. But over those multiple messages that I received, the gospel always brings us to the point, is Jesus your Lord, yes or no? Do you say, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit? Lord Jesus, save me, free me, unchain me, change me, help me, provide for me. I know you love me. Your word tells you that you love me, but I need to believe that you love me. I need to believe that you're for me. Is Jesus of Nazareth your Lord? If you say yes, you receive him.
the very God of gods, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, who created all and you, now tabernacles, dwells in you as his temple. And as we follow him in this way, this is, again, the continuation of the gospel in our lives. He has given to us the power for the old man and the old woman to remain dead. He has given us the power to be free from all sin. I know what it's like to be bound with sin. I know what it's like to pick up my old chains in my relationship with Christ. I know what it's like to live in misery and self-condemnation and the temptations of the devil. I know what it's like to be free. I know what it's like to live this life in liberty. This, this presentation of the good news, it's free. There's nothing that I had to do to earn God's love. There's nothing that I had to do to earn um, his, the, the payment for my sins. There's nothing that I've had to do for, for life. There's nothing that I have to do to, to be able to walk with him and to follow him and to trust him in this life. He's already given me everything that I need. It's this free offer. I am yours if you'll have me. Of course I'll have you, Jesus. Remember in John 6, we have all these disciples. They're turning away from Jesus because life is hard. The word is hard. His teaching is hard. There's lack of understanding. We can have that in our own lives. Lord, I don't understand what you're doing, why you're doing this, all these kinds of things. And we see, again, I've turned aside. I'm sure you've turned aside at different points. God is always there to, to bring us back when we drift that miserable account in John 6 where you have these disciples turning away from the Lord. My heart always comes back to the Lord. Where else am I going to go? You and you alone created the heavens and the earth. You and you alone have a plan for my life. You and you alone have paid for every single sin that I have ever committed against you, God. And you're telling me through your death on the cross that you have washed me that you have purified me, that you have made me clean, and not just me individually, but when I open my eyes and I look at my brothers and sisters in Christ, they are just as clean as I am. It compels me to love him. It compels me to love you, to honor you and to cherish you and all of your weirdnesses. There's some weird people in this room, right? We come from all these different backgrounds, We have had so many different, again, uh, as we sit in the personal testimony with one another in regards to, well, this is what Jesus has done for me. This is how he captured me. This is how he sustained me. This is how he's led me. This is how I freaked out against him. You know, I can share my story with you. You share your story with me. Lots of differences in those stories, but who remains consistent? Jesus remains consistent. Again, as we gather, as we're going to sit here, we're going to have a meal together. We're going to sit, you know, the the blessing that we have of food, to be able to partake in food with one another, to laugh, to cry. When we get to just let all the fluff of life be on the outside, just, you know, 
work on Monday is going to be there, the house that needs to be cleaned, the damages, you know, just whatever you need to take care of, all that stuff gets to sit outside right now, right? And we just get to come in this place as responders to this, this incredible news of God's kingdom that's being communicated to us of who Jesus is, of what he accomplished, what he achieved on the cross, which is our salvation, our deliverance from death, how that affects us when we respond to him, that he has justified us, he has caused us to be as though we have never sinned. He is in us, each one of us individually right now, changing us and transforming us into his image, into his likeness, into his patience into his grace into his love he does this through the power of his holy spirit in us and ultimately the end of what our god has done is to create man and woman in his image and bring those human beings into his presence stephen's declaration that heaven is opened That is what the good news is. When we pray the Lord's Prayer, how did Jesus tell us to pray? Our Father, we're in a relationship with this being who created us. Hallowed be your name. You be holy, you be worthy, you be glorified of who you are in my mind, in my life, in our community. Your kingdom come. Do you know what that means? Your gospel come. Your good news come. Your authority come. Your reign come, your holiness come, your grace come, your goodness come, your peace come. Don't give me America, don't give me any other country, give me your kingdom. Because only your kingdom is good. But it's open, the kingdom is open to everybody. Good news? Eh. What has he forgiven you of? What has he cleansed you from? What are you in absolute misery in right now that he needs to comfort you in, deliver you from, help you through, transform you how you think? Do you need help in your singleness? Do you need help in your marriage? Do you need help in your parenting? Do you need help in your job? Do you need help in a, in a relationship? Do you need to know the word of God? Do you need to know how to communicate to God? Do you know how to just be free in worship? Do you need to understand grace? Do you need to understand love? Do you need to understand obedience? Do you need to understand submission? What do you need? I need a lot. And the good news conveys to me, Blake, look to Jesus, and he's going to process through item by item in his time and his way, whenever you need it, according to his glory. And ultimately, son, there is coming a day when you are going to be ushered into the very presence of the king of kings who created everything, and you are going to be given an eternal body that will be sustained by him and his glory, and you are going to be one with the God who made you and everybody who looks to Jesus as Lord for all eternity. Amen. That's the good news. So let's stand. Let's praise our God. And at the same time,
There's, there's always different categories of souls. I know a lot of you, and we're all in relationship together and in the Lord together, and it's beautiful. Some of you, I know, are struggling just in, in, in life, and you need Jesus to come in and be your Savior and to be your deliverer afresh today. I'm here to pray with you. There's other, others here to pray with you, but you don't have to go through another man. You are free to run to the presence of God through Jesus on your own in confidence. He is there to help. And there's also some in this room, you have never called Jesus of Nazareth your Lord. Why? What's your excuse? What hinders you? Is Jesus just a religious icon? You believe he's a good teacher. You believe that he did these things in history, but you don't believe that he is your Lord. Why? If you're waiting for yourself to be good enough, it's never going to happen. If you're waiting for him to give you what you think you need before you're going to cross over that threshold, he's not going to give you anything else other than himself. Let this be a morning for all of us where we are reaching out with just open hands, open minds, and open hearts. And again, confessing Jesus as Lord. Jesus, you are the one who has opened the gates of heaven. You are the one who has made the way for me and all of us. To no longer be separated from you, the God who has created us, but you are allowing us to participate in your life. Lord, in my thinking and in my heart, where there are obstacles, where there are hindrances, where there are hurdles, where there is sin, where there is pride, where there are idols, where there is anything that is hindering my relationship with the God who has created me, in the name of Jesus, I'm asking that you purge that out of me. Lord, through faith, I believe in you. I trust in you. I hope in you. I live in you. Make me to be the man or woman of God that you have created me to be. I don't want religion, Lord, but I want a real vibrant relationship with you. I want to understand and to know your grace and your love and your peace. When I'm being persecuted, Lord, whether it's the devil or the world or even my own flesh, I'll trust in you. I'll adore you. I'll worship you. I'll follow you. Not in my own effort, not in my own energy, but trusting in you, Lord, to, to empower me, to strengthen me, to direct me. May there never be a life experience in the future, Lord, where I don't recognize your presence, where I don't recognize your kindness and your grace. Even in those overwhelming 
hardships and trials that come our way in the midst of it, Lord. May each of us, may we love you and may we trust you. May we have our confidence and our hope in you and you alone. Be glorified, Jesus.